0: Hey there, welcome to this bonus episode of Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and this is an audio version of my biweekly Q&A newsletter, which is also out today on Substack. Today's newsletter is a really long one, so my answer to the first part of the first question is available to everyone about hair analysis, and then there are a few bonus ones just for paid subscribers about Dutch testing, what you're really looking for with these kinds of tests, and also how concerned you should be about recent reports of heavy metals in chocolate. To hear the full episode, subscribe at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Paid subscribers also get great perks like early access to every episode, bonus interviews with our guests, commenting privileges and subscriber-only threads where you can connect with other listeners, bonus Q&As like this one, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And if you're already a paid subscriber, thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to me. Before I jump into answering the questions, just a reminder that my answers are for educational and informational purposes only and aren't a substitute for medical or mental health advice. I am a registered dietitian, but I am not your dietitian, unless you happen to be one of my one on one clients, in which case, hi, thank you for listening. But still, this is not a session. So, with that, let's go to the first question. It's from April, who writes Hi, Christy. I just discovered your podcast before I was about to spend lots of money on testing. So, thank you for all your insights. I've been following intuitive eating for years, but I'm still healing and learning to accept my body. I was wondering what your thoughts are on HTMA and Dutch testing. Is this new science? They're so tempting for me because it would be nice to see exactly where I'm lacking so I can just eat the foods that will heal my body and make it run, quote unquote, normally. But I know there is no magic pill, as you say. Thank you. So thanks, April, for that great question. And I'm so glad the podcast has been helpful to you. My short answer is I'd recommend continuing to save your money because these tests are not based on solid evidence. They're unlikely to tell you anything helpful, and they can actually provide misleading results that cause harm by convincing you to try unnecessary treatments or supplements or forgo evidence-based medicine. And I know that can be hard to hear when you want help and healing, especially if you haven't been getting adequate support in the conventional healthcare system, which, of course, many of us don't, right? We'll come back to this question of what you're hoping to gain from this kind of testing in a little bit. But first, let's talk about each of these tests in detail, starting with hair tissue mineral analysis, or HTMA. So HTMA supposedly tests the mineral levels in your hair to find deficiencies and quote unquote imbalances, which you can then ostensibly correct through food and supplements that are often sold by the provider who ordered the hair analysis, right? The problem is that hair can't actually tell you these things. Like many problematic wellness practices, HTMA is based on a grain of truth, which is that hair testing can help determine whether someone was exposed to certain substances like illegal drugs, substances banned in sports, or actual poisons, although it does have some limitations in those areas too. But nutrients are a different story, and hair mineral analysis isn't a precise enough method to use for general health and nutrition screening. Researchers have known this for decades, going back to at least the 1980s, so HTMA definitely is not, quote-unquote, new science. In 1985, a critical review of the evidence published by the Canadian Medical Association found that commercial hair analysis was, quote, imprecise, unnecessary, and probably wasteful, end quote. Minerals in hair don't reliably indicate minerals in other body tissues, so you could have low levels in your hair without having a deficiency, or you could have seemingly normal levels in your hair and actually be deficient in something. What's more, the review found there was no scientific oversight or government regulatory control of information provided by commercial hair analysis labs. Therefore, the information may be inaccurate, misleading, and even detrimental to the patient's health, the report concluded. That same year, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published a small study by medical doctor Stephen Barrett, who sent hair samples from two healthy teenagers to 13 different commercial hair analysis companies. Barrett found that identical samples produced wildly different results when sent to different labs, and also when they were sent to the same lab under different names. Not only that, but the labs disagreed about what constituted quote-unquote normal values for many of the minerals. Then in 2001, a study was published that set out to see if anything had changed in the 16 years since Barrett's paper, and especially since the 1988 passage of the Clinical Laboratory Improvement Act, or CLIA, which regulates clinical testing in the U.S. But in 2001, the situation was still very much the same as it was in 1985. Quote, hair mineral analysis from these laboratories was unreliable, and we recommend that he- healthcare practitioners refrain from using such analyses to assess individual nutrition status or suspected environmental exposures, the researchers wrote. Problems with the regulation and certification of these laboratories should also be addressed, end quote. And there's more. <laughs> more than a decade later, these issues still remained. So a 2013 study of three different hair analysis labs found that each lab reported different mineral deficiencies, which resulted in conflicting recommendations for supplements and treatments. One lab even reported different deficiencies for two samples of the same hair. The main reason for these wide variations is that labs basically just make up their own definitions of quote-unquote normal because there are no established reference ranges for minerals in human hair. The ranges considered normal for blood tests can also vary a bit from lab to lab, but those variations are tiny compared to the large discrepancies we see in ranges for hair analysis. Why do those inconsistencies exist in the first place? In part, it's because there's no standard procedure for taking samples, preparing hair for analysis, or extracting minerals from hair, as a 2013 systematic review noted. Basically, there's no standardization to the processes for analyzing hair. And so until those things are standardized and scientifically validated, it's impossible to come up with reliable reference ranges for hair analysis. Each testing company has its own protocols, which may or may not lead to internally consistent results at a given lab, but there's still no evidence-based definition of quote-unquote normal. Now, I want to talk a little bit about a larger issue this raises, which is the regulation of lab tests. Some proponents of hair analysis argue that only quote-unquote bad HTMA labs are problematic and that if you go to a few specific labs that are CLIA certified, you'll get valid results. But the thing is, CLIA only requires labs to meet standards for things like staff qualifications, test reliability, like that internal consistency we talked about, and timeliness of results. CLIA doesn't require lab tests to be clinically valid or useful. So alternative medicine labs might be CLIA certified, but that doesn't mean their tests are any good. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, historically took an enforcement-discretion approach to labs offering these kinds of clinically useless tests, which means that it basically looked the other way. But recently, the agency proposed starting to regulate lab-developed tests, citing their risks to patients. They wrote in a recent news release, quote, the FDA is concerned patients could initiate unnecessary treatment or delay or forego proper treatment altogether based on inaccurate test results, which could result in harm, including worsening illness or death. So basically the same concerns that I raised at the beginning of this answer. The agency is now seeking public comment on this proposed rule, but only for another five days. I wish I'd gotten on this sooner, but if you want to support better regulation of lab tests, you can learn more and submit your comments at the link I'll put in the show notes before December 4th. And if you look at the full show notes, the the Substack version of this uh, podcast, you'll see the full comment I submitted to the FDA in um, support of the proposed rule. You can use that as a guide. I would ask that you please not copy and paste it. I looked through some of the other comments, and there's a lot of copying and pasting from you know some industry newsletter or uh, like a university system or something like that. People are just kind of like copying and pasting the same comments. I think it's actually a lot more effective if you write your own, but you can use mine as a jumping off point. So thanks April again for that question. Now I'm going to answer the second part of your question about the Dutch test and also get into some kind of deeper questions of what you're really looking for when you're looking to these tests. And that'll be in the full episode for paid subscribers. You've been listening to a free preview of this episode, and if you want to hear the rest and get tons more bonus content, become a paid subscriber to Rethinking Wellness by going to rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com.